of you know, I've said, I've mentioned it before, but I'm pretty close with my grandpa. Uh, he's someone that I spent a lot of time with, and he's been a support to me, an encourager to me, uh, spent a lot of time, I mean, everything from going to games when I'm playing to uh, asking me like math questions over the phone when I was a little kid, just learning to count to uh, even today being here to support me in this uh, and grateful for that relationship. Uh, my grandpa's 91 years old. And that is a triumph in itself, but even more so just the way that he has loved and cared for me and everyone in his life. Uh, And it's a testament to who he is. And at the same time, my grandpa never knew his grandpa. I said he's 91, maybe that's not uh, abnormal for someone his age, but the reality is is that he never knew his grandpa uh, because my grandma, uh, she, or my great grandma, she was uh, a German woman uh, by heritage uh, and she fell in love with a member of the Cheyenne tribe in Montana. Uh, And so when she fell in love with him, she decided to marry him. Uh, And my grandpa grew up on the reservation in Montana because of that, but he never met his grandpa because he disowned his daughter for marrying her. He didn't want his daughter with a man like that. He didn't want his daughter with a dirty old Indian. My grandpa, I called him a couple days ago just to ask him, make sure I had that story straight. And uh, he couldn't even remember the guy's name. And at 91 years old, he was a little sad about that. See, the reality is, is that we live in this world of brokenness. And we sing songs like we just sang, the goodness of God, and we wanna be encouraged and uplifted and and we celebrate our forgiveness that we experience from the sins, the things that we've done to to hurt others or even to harm ourselves. We, we, We praise God for that. But a lot of times what we're also struggling with on the other hand is the things that people have done to hurt us. The brokenness that we experience because of the things that people have done to harm us for their own gain, their own selfish desires, their own pleasure, or their own sin. Right, because that's, that's what racism is. That's what, that's what racism is in this situation with my grandpa and his grandpa, dividing a, a family for the rest of generations. But not just racism. I mean, there's, there's consistent examples in each of our lives where people just, they have a certain desire, they have a certain want, they have a certain thing that, that if they just do it and take control, right? if they just do it their way, then it causes us harm. Right? People in positions of authority over us, people uh, around us, friends who've hurt our relationships because they've betrayed us in some way, uh, romantic relationships that have fallen apart, marriages that have fallen apart, all of these things. And the reality is, is that we continue to sit under the weight and the burden of that pain and that hurt and that brokenness, causing us to, to have a challenge to trust and to love and to, to receive grace, to extend grace, that the pain that these things can continue to cause us. It weighs on us. It's like shackles. It's like a prison. And the reality is, when we think about sin and brokenness, we a lot of times think about the things that we shouldn't do, right? We think about the temptations that we have, and, and oh, you know, maybe it's greed, and if I just had a little bit more money, and so, you know, if I, if I move some things around, and if I make the right investments, or, you know, if I just spend a little bit more time in this way, or if I work a little bit more, and, and we get bonded, right, in bondage to those things, the things that we, maybe we shouldn't do, right? The sexual temptations, the, uh, the, the drinking and the drugs, the, the greed, the lust, all of these things. But the reality is, is there's also a, 
a bondage that we can experience from the suffering and the pain at the hands of other sins too. When someone has wronged us, we can feel the weight of those chains just as much. We can feel the trapping of that prison just as much. Even more, it can impact our identity and impact our lives. And maybe you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, and, and you'll know that like in this passage, a lot of the story is about David, right? He's the king of Israel. He's, he's not only the king of Israel, he, he is this anointed shepherd boy who has grown up to be an exemplar soldier and leader and man of God. And he's, he's come into this position. He's taken the throne. He's not even taken the throne. He's been given the throne. And, and out of receiving the throne from the hand of God almost, he, he's able to lead with with, with just power and authority and wisdom that people look to. He becomes this exemplar, even to many people today. But this story paints a very different picture of him. And at the same time, our story today is not going to focus on him because a lot of times we do. Instead, we're going to focus on his counterpart in the story, Bathsheba. And so as we do, we're going to skip some verses. I'm going to highlight what happens in those verses when we don't read them. Uh, but I encourage you to go back sometime this week and to read chapters 11 and 12 as a whole, to see the whole thing come together. Uh, but if you do have your Bible open, you can follow along as I read verse 1 from chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So let's paint this picture a little bit more for you. Uh, David is the king of Israel. And when the springtime came, the reason the spring is so important is before this is a rainy season, right? We kind of understand that here in, in Phoenix, we don't get really like a snowy winter, harsh things. What we get is a rainy season, if we're lucky, uh, where the rain comes, the temperature's cool. And then after that, we get some season of sun where things start to grow. It's that, it's that short window of time here for it's like about a week there. It's a longer season back then. Uh, the mountains are green, right? There's plenty of grasses and, and the flowers are blooming and the trees are blooming and, and all of this stuff. This is a great time for battle because now the armies can take all of their horses and all of their livestock and have plenty of grass for them to eat as they go. The roads will be clear. They won't be muddied and messed up. They'll be able to, to travel and journey to the city that they're going to. So this is the time for war. And so what David does is he, he musters his army. He takes Joab, his, his key leader, and he puts him into the position and, and tells him to go. And he takes all of, the, all of his other men. In fact, every man in Israel that's able-bodied is sent out to battle against their enemies, the Ammonites. And they go, and they go to attack the capital city, Rabbah, right, to work their way there, to defend the honor to defend the safety, to defend the, the people of Israel. But David stays. He remains in his palace. Right? In this story, what we see even in this first verse is that the kings are the ones that are supposed to lead into battle. We saw this with Saul. When David is, is about to fight Goliath, at least Saul is at the battlefield waiting and watching and wondering what's going to happen next. And now David isn't even out there, even in, isn't even in the back of the, the army waiting and watching. He's just at home, relaxing. And so this is when kings lead their, their soldiers into battle and David is taking a nap. 
in verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So rather than be in the battlefield, David is walking around his palace, admiring this kingdom before him. And after having taken an afternoon nap, he sees uh, this woman bathing down below and she is beautiful. The, uh, the word there used for beautiful is, is an emphatic word. Like she is very beautiful. The type of beauty that, that everybody in the room tends to notice. It's not used just of every pretty woman, even in scripture, but just very specifically refer a few and, and, and of David himself at times, even just, just this beauty, the kind of thing that everybody recognizes. And David recognized it. And he wanted it. And so while she was bathing, David starts to question, who is this woman? And he sends some messengers to go and find out. And what they do is they come back to David and they say, this is Bathsheba. And a question almost in the form of like, shouldn't you know who this is already? Because she's the daughter of Eliam. Now Eliam is one of David's trusted advisors. So her father is someone whom David would have spoken with, whom he knows, who, who he would put into positions of authority and, and ask for guidance and wisdom from. One of his soldiers that, that David would trust his own life with. And then in the same breath, they say that this is, this is Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Uriah was also a soldier, in fact, a valiant soldier that was well known for his skill. And so David certainly knew who he was too. And there's these two men of, of position and honor and, and even relationship with David, but he doesn't care. It doesn't stop. It just continues right into the next. I mean, it's so short in this story, right into the next thing, right? It's, it's who is she? This is who she is. It doesn't matter. Bring her to me because he sends his messengers to get her and they take her. She came to him and he lay with her. That's a euphemism, right? For the, the reality is, is that what David saw something that he wanted and so he used his authority as king to take it. Now, maybe you've heard this story in the past and you've seen the picture painted that Bathsheba is this temptress. You've seen the picture painted that Bathsheba was aware of her beauty and she was down below the palace trying to get the attention of the king or some other royal member of the family that she might be able to, to gain something from that. But the scriptures don't, don't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about Bathsheba doing this on purpose. All it says is that she was bathing. And it's not uncommon in that culture. And, and the same reason that David in the hot heat of the day was outside walking, trying to cool off and the same way that she probably was just outside bathing, trying not to be uh, suffocated by the, the heat inside. So she was just outside cleaning up and David happened to see her. 
and he took her and he lay with her. Now, the reality is of this is that this is, a, this is an act of, of aggression. And we don't see all the details as to what that interaction was like. We don't know how, uh, how Bathsheba responded. And so maybe she, maybe she wanted it, maybe she didn't. But the reality is, is whether she did or she didn't, David was the king and you don't deny the king. He's in control. I mean, we read in other passages of scripture that even just to come into the king's presence without being invited was worthy of death. Imagine if you told David no. So we have this picture which, which this mighty King David has fallen egregiously and succumbed to his own temptations, right? Starting to break commandment after commandment, coveting and adultery. And now we have Bathsheba, the victim of this. And as we, we finish this section, we see in, in verse four, it says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. What that means is that Bathsheba was taking a bath because it wasn't like she took a bath every day, but she was taking a bath to, to purify herself after being ceremonial unclean. Uh, it's a reference to her period, right? Because her menstruation had occurred. And so now she uh, had taken the period of time that it would take in order to be ceremonial clean. And now she was, purif she was cleaning herself. She was purifying herself. She was cleaning herself. Uh, this is this image that we see in scripture. You have David who should have been the righteous uh, one who was the leader of Israel, who was going to set the example for all of his people, succumbing to his own temptations, succumbing to his own sin and doing everything that he could in his power to take exactly what he wanted with no regard for any else but Bathsheba purifying herself before the Lord now and the second thing that that tells us is when she conceives the child well it's not her husband's it confirms it because in between that time and the time that David lay with her her husband has been in battle where David should have been he has been out on the battlefield, never even seeing her. But David saw her. And he knew her. And he took her. And this child is conceived. And so Bathsheba sends a message to the king. I'm pregnant. I said uh, in this, this section, we're gonna skip ahead a little bit. So I wanna just summarize what happens after this. So what David does is he hears this news and he recognizes he's done something that could cause a stir. Right? He recognizes that there's a problem with what he's done, that, that there is some action that this might cause a lot of problems for him. And so what he does is he invites Uriah to come back from the battlefield. And he, and he sends the messenger to, to bring Uriah back in and, and he gives them food and wine and he wants him to enjoy himself. And, and he does this so that Uriah will, will get uh, excited about being home. And, and then he encourages him, he says, go, go, like clean up, go, go home, spend some time with your wife, hang out, enjoy the night. Uriah won't do it. Even, even maybe in a drunken state, he still won't do that because the reality is, is that for this culture at this time, it was considered uh, unclean to do anything with your, with your wife while you're in the middle of battle. Right? So, so a soldier wouldn't come home and sleep with his wife and do all these things. And, and Uriah alludes to this even saying, uh, you know what, like, 
all of my men are in battle. Is it right for me to go and lay down at home and be with my wife? So he won't do it. And David does everything he, he can to try to cover up his sin by convincing Uriah to go and be with Bathsheba. But he won't. And so David has to conceive another plan. What he conceives is this plan in which he sends Uriah back into the battlefield and he asks the general to pull the soldiers back. So he sends Uriah into the, the harshest, uh, most challenging points in the battle and he dies. And so do other men die. In fact, uh, doing something just militarily was stupid in order to achieve what the king, David, had asked them to do. Collateral damage to cover up his sin. And then in verse 24 of chapter 11, we see Bathsheba again. Excuse me, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So what we have in this picture is uh, this image that while David gets the news about Uriah and figures it's a deep breath moment, and then he waits for the period of time of mourning to end so that he can bring Bathsheba into his house, the scriptures emphasize three times that this is a relationship that David has wronged, right? The wife of Uriah. She heard about her husband. She lamented over her husband. Bathsheba is torn apart, right? Already having been victimized by the king, and now the news comes that her husband, her protector, her provider, the one that she's in covenant with is dead. Her life seems ruined. A widow, pregnant, and her dad still in battle. And who would she go to for justice? The king? And so David takes her into his home and she became his wife. Now, this isn't uncommon, right? Especially back then, this isn't uncommon for kings to take multiple wives for having uh, political gain and other, other things, but... But the scriptures emphasize here that David was taking for his wife another man's wife. That he was intervening in this covenant. This is not the example he's supposed to be setting for the people of Israel. This is not the way that the king of Israel is supposed to behave. But she became his wife and bore him a son. David thinks it's great. He's covered it up. He got rid of Uriah. And now Bathsheba and her new son, they're in her home. They're in his home. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This isn't what God wants for his king or his people. And so what we have in this next section as chapter 12 starts is this picture of a prophet coming from God named Nathan. And Nathan goes to David and he tells him a story about some sheep. And immediately David recognizes that the, there's a person in this story who's wronged the other shepherd. 
that, that he has done some egregious things. And this is just a story about a sheep. And he's so angry, he thinks it might be real. So he wants to go out and, and, and arrest the person who's done that. And then Nathan turns it on him and says, it's you. And David is cut to the core, recognizing that what he has done with Bathsheba is so egregious that he's guilty of adultery and murder. And he repents and he cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness. God gives it to him. God gives it to him. And in fact, that's, that's the thing that we recognize in this story most often is when we focus on David, we see this story of, of redemption. And, and in Psalm 51, he's written as a response to God's grace and mercy. He, he confesses his own sinfulness and, and we ourselves find grace and mercy from that. We get uh, encouraged and, 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 he, and continue to be empowered even by the way that God loves us in the midst of our sin. But when we think about this from the perspective of Bathsheba, it doesn't sound very redeeming. In verse 26 of chapter 12, this is uh, the concluding of this, of this story. It says, now, jo- uh, excuse me, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means the Lord's beloved because of the Lord. And so now rather than Uriah's wife, Bathsheba is called David's wife. I mean, to the ancient ear, this definitely would have sounded like redemption, right? For David, he's, he's committed sin and he's repented of sin. And now through God's grace, he's been, he's been spared. And they together, uh, Bathsheba and David mourn the loss of a son, the death of the son that was conceived in the midst of this. One commenter uh, put it this way, that the son's life was the final innocent life uh, taken by the, the sin of David. But David's redeemed. He's the king. He's in control. He, he, he's been forgiven by God. But what about Bathsheba? And maybe, I mean, her circumstances have certainly changed, right? She's, she's the wife of the king now, and, and she has been given the, the honor of being a queen. And, and even more, she's also conceived another son and given birth to him, and that is a true blessing in their culture. To conceive children is important to, to a, being a woman in that, in that time period, but even more so to give birth to a son, an heir. And not even that, but the people that, have heard this story, that would have heard this story at the time it was written, that he is the heir named Solomon who would become king king. Doesn't that sound redeeming? Doesn't that sound like God has done something through her for her? Her circumstances have changed. But I think to a modern ear, there's still something missing. I mean, for me, there's something missing. Because while all of those things have changed, while all of her life may have have worked out fine after that, there's still the pain. There's still the brokenness. There's still the hurt of what David did. Maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you feel that way because of things that that people have done to you, the the relationships that have been torn out, out of your own hands because of someone else's sin. Maybe you feel that way because of the 
the way that your parents treated you, the screamed at you or beat you. Maybe, maybe you feel that way because of the way that your boss overlooked you. Maybe you feel that way because of the things that you've experienced and the suffering that you endure, you still feel the pain of, the ache in your soul. Because even if your circumstances have changed and now you can buy nicer clothes or now you have a house or now you have a, a, a husband or a wife or now you have, have kids, there's still the pain of the things that happened. And the reality is we want those things to change. We want, we want those feelings to change. We, want, we don't just want those feelings to go away. We wanna feel like we felt before. We want, the, we want to feel like those things never happened. We, want, we don't want redemption, we want, we want reversal. Like it never existed. Like whatever, whatever caused us pain, what, what, whatever, whatever just aches in our hearts and our souls, we were wronged. I want it to be like it never happened again. But that's not reality. Right, the reality is that from the time of Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God, sin has broken into this world and ravaged relationships, ravaged lives, ravaged souls. And that brokenness has carried on from generation to generation through David and to us. There isn't a reversal. There isn't a, a pretending that it, that it never happened. And we recognize that. We recognize that with our own bodies, right? Like I have scars on my body from like sports and skateboarding and, and stupid stuff off of house roofs, right? Like uh, I have a, I got stitches in my knee a couple of years ago. I genuinely right now can't tell you which knee the stitches were in. But I have them. I have a scar from it. And even more, I have uh, my shoulder. Like, and I've noticed this more and more, like as I get older, like it just just aches for no reason, right? Like I, I got injured when I was in high school and then I got injured again and then I did something else and, and it hurt it more. And then now like if I just sleep wrong on it, it just, I just feel it, right? And if I pick up Benji and, and throw him around, not like throw him around, but like just like carry him around, um, I feel it. The reality is, is that there's things that happen to us. There's, there's the wrongs that people do to us. And, and sometimes it's forgive and forget, right? And I don't mean that like pejoratively. I don't mean that like, just like, just forget about it. It never happened. I mean, just genuinely as a part of our healing, we don't really remember like the stitches in my knee. I know it's there. I could see the scar, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, doesn't impact me today. But then there's things that just keep sticking with us. We don't want them to, we don't, and we, we wish we didn't feel it, but it's just there. And it's not like it was, but it's still there. Because we can't really reverse it. Once it's happened to us, it's happened. But I think this still is a story of redemption. And the reality is, is if we sit in this idea of wanting things to be reversed, we have to recognize that they can't be. And there's two directions to go from there. And the first is that there's this seed of bitterness that gets planted and that points us to retribution, right? These, 
This starts even in a sense of justice and goodness, this idea that like I have been wronged, I've been hurt, I feel pain, I shouldn't feel this way, and that's good. God didn't want us to experience those things. We shouldn't feel the weight of sin, but we do. But when that seed of bitterness starts to grow, it leads to the sense of retribution, right? Because it goes from, if I can't feel like I felt before, if I can't feel like this never happened, then I want others to feel the way I feel. I want others to feel, I'm gonna make them feel the way that I feel because I shouldn't feel like this, but I do, so maybe you will too. Because if I can't get over it, then I'm gonna get even. And I want them to feel that way. And if you don't think I should feel that way and they should feel that way, then you should feel that way too. And this seed of bitterness sprouts and just continues to go into more sin, right? It, it's the response of, of whether it's David's sin or someone else's sin. That it's, it's, if, this doesn't happen in the Bible, but if, if Bathsheba's dad comes home and, and slaughters David. But then one of David's sons gets mad and slaughters him. And then there's this feud between, right? This bitterness grows and blossoms into this, this fruit of death. Retribution isn't redemption and it's not even justice. But I do think this story is a story of redemption. I'm gonna read the uh, last two verses again from or, well, 24 and 25 from verse 12. Then David comforted his wife. Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It's a story of redemption. Redemption means this. Redemption is this picture of being freed from bondage, right? The, the chains being thrown off, the, the prison cell being blown open to being set free and being moved out, right? Like as in a slavery or, or, or excuse me, a slave or a prisoner being removed from that bondage. And we experience that bondage, right? I said in the beginning from the sins that we have, but also from the sins of others. And so this picture of redemption is being set free from that bondage and it's freedom that comes through a king, but it's not through David and his repentance. And it's not through Solomon being a better king than David. It's through generations later through Jesus, the king of Israel, the ultimate king of the world. And so what we see in Matthew one is this, this picture and Jesse the father of David, the king, this genealogy that traces the line of Jesus uh, from Abraham to the birth of the Messiah. In verse six, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And, and Matthew writes this genealogy, including uh, um, Bathsheba and Rahab, the prostitute, and, and, um, and continues down through the line into Mary, the betrothed virgin who somehow got pregnant and had to go into hiding, and finally to Jesus. Right, this picture of these women even in this genealogy that would have been outcast and, and thrown about and, and disregarded in their part of the story that comes to Jesus. 
and the redemption that they find in him, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the healing, and the ultimate king. Our hope is in a God who, who comes into our darkness, who sees our brokenness, who, who is the physician that binds our wounds, who is the light that steps into our darkness and, and who casts out all fear, who casts out our brokenness, who casts out our pain and calls us to, to come to him with open hands and to take even the, the wounds and the pain and the suffering that we have endured and to nail it to the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning in worship. Father, I pray that you would encourage us to recognize that even the sin of others, Lord, that we can find redemption from, that the pain that we have endured, we can find hope for healing. God, we trust that, that through Bathsheba and her story, through David and his story, through all of these things, you're pointing us to you that you don't excuse sin as something trivial or unimportant, but that you saw it so serious that you would send your son, our savior, Jesus, to overcome it. And in overcoming sin, bring redemption, not only from the things that we've done, but from the things that have been done to us, God, and the pain and the suffering even that we have caused others and that we feel for ourselves, God, because you're a God that brings healing and a God who brings hope and the God who loves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.